Welcome to Books and Beyond with your hosts, Karen and Luisa. Join us for half an hour of information, entertainment, reading recommendations, and beyond. Brought to you by Auckland Libraries. I know this girl, and she works in a library, yeah. Kia ora listeners, thanks for tuning in. This is your host Alison and today I'm speaking with author Tessa Duda about her new book First Map, How James Cook Charted Aotearoa New Zealand. The book is illustrated by David Elliott and published by HarperCollins. Kia ora Tessa. Kia ora. Thank you so much for being here today and congratulations on the book. It really is beautiful. Yes. How did it feel? when you sent it off to print? Well, at that point, of course, we didn't know what the book was going to look like. We'd had the page proofs, but you can't really get the full flavour of the book when, until you're holding it in, in your hand. Oh. And so when the advanced copy comes through, that's the moment. It never fails to thrill you. And yeah. I've published about, oh, I don't know, 45, 50 books now, and it's always a tremendous thrill. It must be so exciting yeah, when, you, when you first open open the book. Absolutely. Oh, wonderful. And now, the book has been published as part of the commemoration of Cook's 1769 journey around New Zealand. So I'm wondering <coughs> if you'll be taking part in any of the activities that are planned for this commemoration? No, I'm not doing any official things at all for the Tui 250. Um, the book really sort of started about five years ago, long before the Tui 250 had been mooted as a government-funded exercise to c- commemorate Cook's arrival in New Zealand in October 1769. Mm. So it's 250 years later. And I went to HarperCollins and said, I'm fascinated by this map i always have been because i grew into uh, married into a sailing family mm-hmm. and that sailing family was also particularly interested through my then husband um in square riggers and tall ships oh. so i sort of absorbed his enthusiasm and became very enthusiastic myself and we were both involved with the spirit adventure um the first uh, ship and then the second one which was uh, the Spirit of New Zealand. We both sailed on that and um, served on the trust board. So I ha- ha- absorbed the knowledge that Cook's chart of New Zealand was done with a very cumbersome ship, which mm. would barely go to windward. And the chart that he produced was astonishing in its accuracy. And I said to the publisher, I'd like to do a book on this, originally a children's book. And they thought it was a good idea. And then I wrote it about two or three years ago most of the text and did the research that I had to do and um, then of course they announced the 2250 mm. so it seemed very timely to bring it out just before which is what we've done yeah mm. oh interesting um, that really helps with the timeline of, yeah. of things and um, because you are a, a, a sailor and yes. um, somewhat of a, a seafarer how does that help when, when you're undertaking a book like this well I've read a lot of Cook books, um, the biography of Beagle Hole and Dame Anne Salmon's wonderful mm. three books that she's written on Māori, European Encounter, and The Trial of the Cannibal Dog was her first one about Captain mm. Cook in the South Seas. So mm. um, I, you perhaps almost answered it really with with all the sailing that you've done. Yeah. And because you, you've done some ocean sailing as well, yes. haven't you? And that must have been... 
fascinating. And I, I wondered if perhaps you'd felt some of that joy or some of that despair that you mm. might feel when you're in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> well, somebody said to me the other day, reading this book, First Map, that they felt that I'd almost been around the coast with Cook. Mm. And I was delighted with that comment because that's exactly what I set out to do, was to retell the story, the narrative of his six-month navigation around New Zealand and to give people, give the reader some sort of um, idea of what it was like to be on that ship, mm. encountering the storms and the Maori encounters, of course, yes. which for the first three days were pretty dreadful. Awful. Um, and then the storms and the calms that they got into, the near disasters, because in the index there's a uh, an entry near disasters in New Zealand mm. and there are seven occasions when they were very, very lucky to survive. Mm. Uh, not so much the Māori ones but the nautical ones where they could easily have uh, been swept against rocks or founded in a storm. So that, I think sailing across the Tasman in 2013 was mm. a good glimpse for me into what it's like to sail away from a coastline. Mm. Uh, and then when we were uh, getting near the Three Kings Islands in Cape Ranga, just just seeing a coast after a, a week of pretty awful weather, mm. uh, by this time we were under a full moon, mm. and it was just just a great experience, and it gave me just a tiny glimpse of what those sailors must have felt when they were approaching a coastline that they knew about, in the case of Tahiti, or in the case yes. of New Zealand. All they had to go on was Tasman, uh, who'd charted the coast from Hokitika up to, about, up to Cape Reinga in 1642. And they knew that was there, but they didn't know what was lay between them coming from the east um, and Tasman's western coast. Yes. So they had no idea. No. Except yeah. as they got closer, there were signs in the colour of the water and the birds and the fish and seaweed and pieces of wood in the water. So they, they had some idea there was some land ahead, but they had absolutely no idea what it was. Mm, incredible, mm. isn't it? Yeah. Now, um, it must take um, a, a lot of discipline to research and, and write a, a book like this. And, um, of course, you've written other non-fiction that's been meticulously researched. Mm -hmm. I'm holding one in my hand, um, the book about Sarah Matthew. Um, when you're doing your, your researching, how do you structure your day? I'm always fascinated by this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do do a full day's work, um, but it's sometimes at quite strange hours, like three o'clock in the... Well, no, not three in the morning, mm. but um, I do a lot of work at night. I think that was a habit I got into when the children were younger, and um, I found that that was a good time for me, sort of after they'd gone to bed. Mm. I'm not an early riser. Um, but I do tend to read widely around the subject, so, for instance, for this book, I read the whole of uh, Cook's journal of the first voyage and Banks's journal. Mm. Interestingly, there were about 14 journals kept on board Endeavour and Anne Salmond talks about how she forensically examined each one of those 14 uh, books uh, that were available in print um, those, and, it, and compared across 14 different accounts of the same day and she did that for a three-year voyage which must have been an enormous enormously time-consuming effort 
But, of course, the value to somebody like me is that that research has been done meticulously. Oh, yes, um, And so I relied, for this book, I relied heavily on Anne, Anne Salmond and Beagle Hole's mm. definitive biography, still regarded worldwide as the best. Um, I also um, read oh, probably 10 or other, 10 or 12 other books written by various writers, mostly from England, some from Australia, and, of course, there's also quite a lot on the internet, um, oh, yes. which I got into. So, yes, I, I've always have, had the habit of reading very widely around whatever subject it is. And for the Sarah Matthew book, I um, read the papers that are held in the Auckland Public Library, yes. a wonderful collection there, and had some help from a genealogist who had a special interest in Sarah Matthew. She had died... But I found out by a rather circuitous route that her husband had three boxes of material on Sarah Matthew gathered over 20 years. Oh, yes, I was reading. Yes, so I was able to have access to that and they will go to the public library eventually, um, those papers. So, yes, I I enjoy the... um, just the gathering of material mm. from as many sources as I, as I can. Yeah, and in the case of the Sarah Matthew book, that was really serendipitous, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was very lucky mm. to find a uh, descendant in England who set me on that trail to getting those papers. Yes, mm. oh, it's wonderful. Now, um, when you were uh, researching James Cook, did you get a sense about what drove him or, or what? inspired him as a person yes you do uh, in all the writings about him it's acknowledged that not much of his interior life is known because for the main reason it appears that his wife uh, burnt all his letters oh, his yes. personal letters to her uh, she regarded as sacred so at the end of her life as she died at 91 I think mm. it was um, she gave away a lot of the artefacts that he'd collected some to museums, some to private collectors, and she burnt the letters. But we do have quite a lot of evidence just in what he did over the years. We know that he was apprenticed to a grocer in his teens, and this was in Whitby. And Whitby, of course, was a, a port with a lot of colliers and fishing boats coming and going. And it didn't take very long for him to, to decide that he wanted to go to sea. Well, having gone to sea in Colliers, he rose through the ranks and was about to be given his first command at the age of about 29 when he suddenly decided to do something quite unusual and that was to leave the merchant service and forego his first captaincy and to join the Royal Navy. Mm. And he went back to being a Royal, uh, an able seaman. Well, of course, he rose very quickly through the ranks because he had 10 years' experience and Ten years later, uh, he was given command of Endeavour. Now, in that second ten-year period, he'd been mostly in Canada. And over there, he'd developed his skills as a surveyor and made some wonderful charts of the Quebec River um, because a war was being waged there at the time and they needed to know what what, what the um, configuration of the river was. So when they were looking for a a master for the Endeavour, this 39-year-old man was known to be a very fine seaman. He was known to be a skilled surveyor with a lot of mathematical um, ability. And as it turned out, he t- um, was also a very fine manager of a ship because 
one thing I do know about having sailed on a ship across the Tasman is that um, to have a happy ship, you've got to have strong leadership. And it seems that on the Endeavour, if you read the complete journal, um, you get the impression that he kept a very happy ship. Mm. Uh, he was very much ahead of his time in the management of, of preventing scurvy because he insisted that his sailors had to eat sauerkraut and puha. Yes. Which is a form of sour thistle which they gathered in every port they were landing that they made and the crew were instructed to read it. Uh, sorry, to to, um, to eat it. Mm, mm. Um, so not only was he a, a fine seaman, but uh, it does seem that he um, also insisted on cleanliness in the ship. So all these things meant that when he arrived in Batavia, um, after having circumnavigated New Zealand and sailed up the eastern coast of Australia and charted that for the first time by a European, when he arrived in Batavia, uh, the deaths that happened there were not from scurvy. Mm. Uh, he didn't lose any of his sailors to scurvy, which was almost unheard of in, yes. that, in that time. Scurvy was a major cause of death and um, disease and um, just a terrible condition. misery. And misery, on, and yes. misery on, yes. on the ships doing long, long passages. Yes, so he really was quite extraordinary, wasn't yes, he? Yes, I think so. Yes. I, I think of him as a very humble person. He, he, he knew his own worth. You can, mm. you can get this feeling from reading his journals. Um, he was very fair. On one occasion up in the Bay of Islands, three of his sailors stole from the Maori Gardens in the Bay of Islands and he flogged them because mm. he wanted to show to both the Maori, who he was having a lot of interaction with, uh, and his own sailors that he would not tolerate disrespect of the Maori. So he had them flogged and when one of them um, insisted that he'd done nothing wrong, he had he gave him an extra six lashes. Now, yes. <laughs> which yes. is unfortunate for the sailor, but but that was a case in point really. So you get the impression that he was um, a very straightforward person. And I think the first voyage, which is most of the focus of my book, although it's quite useful in terms of giving a long, um, a general uh, a general picture of Cook's career, um, you get the impression that he uh, really was at his peak on the first voyage. Mm. The second voyage, he was in search of a great southern continent mm. and he went right down to the Antarctic south of Tahiti. The third voyage was a tragic mistake probably because yes. by that time he was tired and irrational, possibly suffering from some disease. He had a ship which was leaking and it ended in his death in Hawaii. Yes. So, yes, we we should remember him, I think, when he was in New Zealand, I think mm. it was he was at his prime. At his peak, mm. yes, yes. And um, um, so often um, with European explorers, when they're in pursuit of empire, um, they're often relying on local or indigenous assistance when making these um, so-called discoveries. Um, why do you have any thoughts about why schools haven't really taught this aspect um, in in the past? <laughs> I'd go further and say they're not teaching anything mm. about Cook or really very much about our history at all. And even would you say in the present day as oh, well? Or well, in or? recent months, I've the History Teachers Association have gone public. 
I keep reading other of other people who are saying that it's actually negligent that we don't teach our children mm. more of our history. For me, it's not in secondary school that should be happening because they've got lots of options once they get there. But upper primary and intermediate is where we should be telling mm. stories, our, telling children our finding stories. You know, the Maori story up until um, Cook's arrival, um, the founding stories of Cook and the settlers and the missionaries and everybody else and the Treaty of Waitangi. But if you look at the curriculum, it's incredibly woolly. Uh, it doesn't make any any suggestion that they should be teaching our own special, mm. unique history. Mm. And I, I just think that's terrible. I think we've got um, a generation or possibly two generations who've grown up with very little knowledge of our past. And I would love to see that reversed. I personally think it should be a core subject in upper primary and, and um, intermediate schools. Yeah, and mm. and particularly if we could teach the the real history rather than the whitewashed version. Well, where it was all just um, very good. I totally agree, and it's interesting to compare what is happening with two year two fifty, which is starting next mm. month and going through to December, with the two hundreds. Yes, which would that have been in nineteen sixty nine? Yes, in nineteen sixty nine was only in Gisborne. They had a fly past. Mm. the Royal New Zealand mm. Air Force. They had five navies represented from Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand and one other which I can't remember. Um, they had a civic welcome. They had fireworks. They had a parade through the city. They would not have mentioned the deaths of the first mm. few days mm. when Cook, those when they first this arrived. Last, on, yes. yes. Those first three days were horrible. Mm. Uh they didn't mention that, and the role of Tupaya was yes. barely known. It is mentioned in Beaglehold's um, biography, but now we recognise that Cook's circumnavigation of New Zealand and the eight landings that he made, principally to get firewood and water and puha, that's, those are the reasons he went ashore. But on the second day, they discovered in their encounter with the Māori um, on the beach at Gisborne, they discovered that Tahitian, the Tahitian language could be understood by the Māori. Mm. There's a wonderful description in both of their journals of how Tupaya called out in Tahitian and the Māori answered mm. because that meant that he, Cook, had an interpreter and he was absolutely invaluable and to Cook as they went around and he was able to be both the mediator occasionally uh, interpreter and he became quite famous among the hapu living around the mm. coasts so the Tuia 250 are going to properly acknowledge Tupaya for the probably oh, the first God. time so everybody is you know totally um, thrilled about that not only the Māori among us but um, also you know, for the general record that unfortunately um, Tupaya was one of those who died in Batavia Yes. Which was very sad because he had gone on the trip with the intention of getting to England. Uh, Banks had encouraged it. Cook wasn't all that keen because he uh, he worried about what would happen to uh, Tupaya once they got to London. Mm. And he, he, he had to be persuaded. But 
certainly on the on the circumnavigation, um, Tupaya was absolutely invaluable. Yes, mm. and what a tragedy that yes. he yes he died um, when he did. Mm. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, and because I'm also wondering about um, getting back to our our school students, whether you think they're learning enough um, critical thinking these days. Um, and I suspect, well, <laughs> I suspect not, well, but I'm not a teacher and mm. I do have a lot of teacher friends and I know that they work incredibly hard mm. and, um, you know, one wants to support them in every way we can. I suspect that they're probably, um, they don't get a terribly good press. The, no. t- the teachers in our country and I think it, that is unjustified I think they are doing a magnificent job from what I can hear and I do visit schools occasionally um, but from what I hear about the history side of things is my teacher friend said well if they get any history at all as they get up to the high school level it's really only because of one teacher's enthusiasm mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's not a good situation mm-hmm. I, I personally think that we should be telling them stories of our of our past history and then people won't be make, making extravagant claims like cook indulged in mass slaughter when he got to new zealand mm-hmm. i think the number from all the reading that i've done is about 12 well every 12 is a tragedy mm-hmm. every one of those 12 is a tragedy yeah. but i don't really think that that can be uh, identified as mass slaughter mm-hmm. so if the knowledge of cook's circumnavigation and the events that happened there were put in context and with some knowledge of world history, well, then I think we would be having a, a more moderate sort of discourse. Yes, yeah. So it really comes down to the curriculum, I, I think guess, so. doesn't it? Yes, yes. yes. Mm. So that we can have some good conversations. Yes, well, unfortunately, we use this word compulsory, and as soon as we say that, you know, people tend to, tend to shy off. Mm, if we mm. just said it should be a core subject because it's a... Um, it's a vital piece of young people's understanding and, as you say, critical thinking as they grow mm. up. Well, then, so be it. Mm. Mm. Interesting. And just getting back to, to <coughs> Mrs. Cook, so Elizabeth Cook, um, did you get a sense of how she coped or, or didn't cope in the absence of a husband? I um, think she coped very well from what I've read and Beaglehole is very good on, on this from the evidence that he had. Um, we know that she had uh, five, six children mm. and they all died before her. Two but, of the boys grew yeah. to adulthood and both were at sea. At sea, that's right. Um, and they both died in tragic circumstances. So she had a great deal of grief in her life. Oh, the, the sorrow is almost unimaginable isn't it yes but one has the impression that she was widely respected that she was had lots of visitors to her home Mm. that she got on with her life and eventually died at a great age yes so she was obviously a very strong character she must have been Mm. quite extraordinary and i couldn't help um comparing her in a way to to sarah matthew Mm -hmm. the partner of um felton matthew and uh, she was extraordinary as well wasn't she she was and the interesting thing i suppose for my generation is that we're now seeing more and more books coming out telling the women's side of Mm. history um history has traditionally been written by the men Mm, and now we're getting the female Mm. um perspective 
And the book that I'm writing at the moment is exactly that. It's oh. it's a young girl's perception of a certain moment in New Zealand history, which I'm not going to say any more oh, about. Good. <laughs> oh, how exciting. Because I was going to ask you, mm-hmm. what was in the future? Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> that's wonderful. Well, I'm about it? halfway through. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's really exciting. Mm. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Um, now, um, getting back to the book, when you're working on a book that will be illustrated and you were saying earlier that you you don't really see what it's going to look like do you have to take anything into consideration knowing that you know you're working with David Elliott for example no not really in the in the writing itself no I mean, I finished a draft of the text and sent it to David and then, of course, he gets his imagination to work and and uh, he sent back sketches. Um, what He was given a brief in the sense that um, it would be nice if, if he could illustrate some of the moments, the key moments mm. in the book. But he came up with something very interesting because we decided fairly early in the piece that we were not going to use any of the very familiar images of the wonderful war canoe sketches mm. of Sidney Parkinson um, or the the tattooed um, face of a Maori that which appear in nearly every book. Um, and so David has used a sort of artistic convention of saying that something is after Sidney Parkinson so that it's like an echo of the real thing. Um, and it suits the production values. Well, it, yeah, it suits the sort of tone of the book very well. Yes, that, you know we haven't just gone back to those original images, but we've David's put his particular beautiful F- flavour flavour on it. Yes. yes, and his skill as a watercolour artist, yes. and I love his work. Oh yes, it's just yeah. exquisite. Yes, isn't it? and he, yes. it was he who d- who suggested that we um, give the book a sort of slightly old-fashioned look. Mm. With the typeface and and the um, the way the the maps have been um, uh, bled into the into the page, it's, mm. it's lovely. But mm. I would say that um, the idea of the jacket uh, it was one that was discussed right at the beginning, and I would urge people who have the book in their hands to look inside the jacket because there's a real surprise in there. Oh, Haven't yes. you seen that? I don't know whether... I, do you have to take the jacket off? Yes, you do. Oh, oops. And I... Because I've been trying to look after the book so mm. I haven't done... Oh, I'm going to do it later. Yes, well, oh, when we finished... Yes. <laughs> yes, yes no. it'll be like an unveiling. Of, well, it is. Oh. And when I've showed it to people, they've sort of gasped. They, they, yes. They realise that that's a, that's a bonus. So oh. that was David's idea too. Yes. So, um, Oh, I'm so glad to mm. know that. Mm. Yes, I'd never thought to, to do that. So <laughs> it must have been my old-fashioned upbringing not to to do anything to the jacket. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, and Tessa, um, just sort of quickly, um, who have been your influences as a writer? Oh, maybe that you can't answer that quickly. Well, yes, I can <laughs> answer it quickly. Um, Margaret Mahi is, oh, is yes. top of my list mm. because she was such a wonderful person but such a magical writer. Um, I suppose when I started writing the Alex books, mm. um, th- there were some English writers um, about sport whom I particularly read with interest because I sort of gave myself a crash course in YA writing but one thing I will mention is that the Alex books are being uh, reprinted and they're coming out in October in a in a new uh, whole new edition oh fantastic Uh, a wonderful new publisher called One Tree House oh yes 
um, took the rights and decided they would bring all four books out in one volume. Oh, wonderful. And so I'm very pleased about that. Yes. You know, another generation will get a chance to yes. read them. Mm. Yes. Oh, I'll be rereading them. Yeah, I loved the, the Alex books. Thank you. In my time. Thank you. Yes. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And um, and you've told us a little bit about your, your next project. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I guess when you're working on um, one, uh, you know, a big project like this, are you, is half of your mind or a quarter of your mind thinking about the next one? Uh, no, I tend to be rather focused on the book in hand. Um, yes, and but it does occupy a lot of my waking and sleeping hours. <laughs> oh, right. Yes, so you yes. dream, dream it as I well. I do, yes. yes. Mm. Oh, that's... And yes. so this, I've, I felt I got to know the coast of New Zealand quite well. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Mm. Yes. Oh, look, it's just such a beautiful, exquisite book. Thank and you. Um, congratulations on on its release. Thank um, you. Look, I think it's a book that really does belong in every home and, and school and public library. Um, it's just been such an honour to have you here today, Tessa. Thank you. And uh, so I've been speaking with Tessa Duda today about her book, First Map, How James Cook Charted Aotearoa, New Zealand, published by HarperCollins, Um, and with the the beautiful illustrations by David Elliott. It really is a a joy to behold. Thanks so much. Thank you. So to our listeners, um, tune in next time, and until then, ka kite anō and haere rā. And thanks, Tessa. And I'm going to um, open that jacket <laughs> right now. <laughs> right now. <laughs> Thank you. This program was brought to you by Auckland Libraries. Find us online at aucklandlibraries.govt.nz and catch the program next Sunday at 9.35pm on 104.6 FM or anytime online at planetaudio.org.nz slash books and beyond. Every day, every day, every day.